Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Your Majesty, you had a vision. You saw a large statue. This statue was very bright. It stood in front of you, and it looked terrifying. The head of this statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its stomach and hips were made of bronze. Its legs were made of iron. Its feet were made partly of iron and partly of clay. Daniel, chapter 2, verses 31 through 33, God's Word Translation. In my visions at night, I, Daniel, saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the Mediterranean Sea. Four large animals, each one different from the others, came out of the sea. The first animal was like a lion, but it had wings like an eagle. I saw a second animal. It looked like a bear. After this, I saw another animal. It looked like a leopard. On its back, it had four wings like the wings of a bird. The animal also had four heads. After this, I saw a fourth animal in my vision during the night. It was terrifying, dreadful, extraordinarily strong, and had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed its victims and trampled whatever was left. It acted differently from all the other animals that I had seen before. Daniel, chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, God's Word Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time air quality engineer. He's the one who schedules the spring and fall tune-ups on the air conditioning system. Today, however, he set those duties aside as we approach the end of a series looking at biblical prophets and prophecy, with this series featuring a brief study into the book of Daniel. The amazing prophetic accuracy of the book of Daniel is one of the strongest indicators that the Bible must have a supernatural origin. As we've discussed in our last couple of episodes, Daniel gave us an entire series of prophecies about world empires that would control the Mideast and much of the surrounding geography. Hardy, would you like to give us a brief overview of what we've learned about these world empires from Daniel? I'd love to. Now, in brief, in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we saw that Daniel prophesied about the parts of the world that today we would refer to as the Mideast, Western Asia, Europe, and North Africa, and we saw that Daniel prophesied that this part of the world would fall under a series of four very prominent empires. But Daniel didn't just make his prophetic announcements about these empires in one place within his book. He actually mentions the same series of four empires in three separate chapters of the book of Daniel. 
But we get different details about these empires from these three separate prophetic pronouncements. Now, we know today that those four empires that Daniel was prophesying about were, in chronological order, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. Now, on our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we talked about the first three empires. We talked about, last time, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. So today we're going to focus on that last empire, the Romans. And we're going to at least briefly start to talk about why these four specific empires were so important to God's unfolding plan of redemption. All this sounds fascinating. But before we get too deep into the discussion for today, how about if we start out on a lighter note? Let's hear a bit of humor about one of the most famous episodes from Daniel's life with one of Crystal Sea Book's Life Lessons with a Laugh. This one emphasizes that one of the reasons Daniel was such an effective biblical prophet was because of his faithfulness. R.D., dude, where are you? In the recording room, Tabby J. I just came in, and there are four cats in the lobby. And look, there's another dozen in the recording room. Actually, 15, Tabby J. Ooh, hold on. 15 and 4? That's 19. Where are the other three? Wait a minute, hold on. There are 22 cats in the office today? R.D., you know cats and clowns creep me out, man. Why would you do that? I don't understand. I'd... Oh, wait, wait. Maybe I do understand. I think I got it. Today we're doing Daniel and the Lion's Den. Exactamundo, Tabby J. Oh, my goodness. I wanted to set the scene for our next life lesson on Daniel and the King of Babylon. Although for today, I suppose I should say Daniel and the Persian King since before this incident, the Medes and Persians had conquered Babylon. Chapter 5 of the Book of Daniel records that Daniel prophesied that Babylon would be conquered by the Medes and Persians. Chapter 6 records that Darius the Mede had taken over as king. Okay, I get all that. But was it really necessary to bring in this herd of cats? Clowder, Tabby J. Okay, I get all that. But was it really necessary to bring in this herd of cats? And my name's not Tabby J. It's a group of cats is called a clowder. Oh, clowder, not louder. Sorry about that. Or sometimes a glaring if the cats seem uncertain of one another. Kind of like how I feel about RD right now. Meow, Tabby J. I just thought it would help set the mood for us to see how Daniel felt when he was thrown in the lion's den. Besides, I told you last night I was going to get some props for today's recording. Yeah, yeah, but I thought you meant a few stuffed animals. I had no idea you meant, well, this. You know I don't like cats and clowns. Dude, come on. Precisely, Tabby J. And that's why we didn't order any clowns. You said you don't like cats and clowns. I thought you meant you were just creeped out when they were together. Be right. I told you we should have opted for the bobcats and lynxes. Noted. In the future, use only bobcats and lynxes when Tabby J will be on site. What? No, no, no. Do not order bobcats or lynxes. Ocelots? No. Pumas? No. Servals? Definitely not. I don't even know what that is, but I'm going to say no. The serval, 
is a slender, medium-sized wildcat native to Africa. It is rare in North America and the Sahel, but widespread in sub-Saharan countries except rainforest regions. No to any and all members of the feline family. And hey, why was Daniel tossed into a lion's den in the first place? For being faithful to God, Tabby J. You see, after the Medes and Persians took over Babylon, it seems Daniel was once again elevated to a high position in the new court. And that made some other court officials very jealous. Be right? Verses 6 through 9 of Daniel, chapter 6, record that some of the other court officials tricked the king into signing an order that no one was allowed to pray to any god other than the king. And if they did, they would be thrown into a den of lions. They knew Daniel would be faithful to his god and continue to pray daily to him, as was his custom. Whoa! That means Daniel was punished for doing something good. Exactamundo, Tabby J. My name's not Tabby Just like we saw in an earlier lesson, sometimes being faithful to God is going to be costly. The other court officials were jealous of Daniel, and they wanted to get rid of him. Since they knew Daniel was an impeccable servant of the king, they knew that the only way to do that was by trying to use his faith against him. But it turned out that God interceded for Daniel and saved him by shutting the mouths of the lions. I wouldn't mind if he would repeat that right here, right now. The other court officials would have shared your sentiment, Tabby J. After Daniel emerged unscathed from the lion's den, the king had them thrown in. They received the punishment they had intended for Daniel. As Psalm 146 says, The Lord loves the righteous, but thwarts the way of the wicked. And speaking of wicked, where is Slasher? Hold on. There's a cat named Slasher? And it's loose in here? And what happened to the rest of the the, the, the herd, the, the clouder? Not to worry, Tappy J. Slasher popped open the refrigerator door and discovered Artie's tuna fish sandwich. Hey, that's not right. The cats are eating my lunch? Ah, now that sounds about right to me. Glad I decided to go out today. Be right, order the pet pickup for while I'm out. Sure, Tabby J. Sure. Well, that's it from Tabby J. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Sure, still Jerry. Sure. Me, R.D. And the whole Crystal Sea cat crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not famous, but our boss is. Okay. We've learned a number of things from that lesson. First, that there are a lot of different species that descended from the pair of felines that Noah carried on the ark. And some people don't like any of them. And second, that even though Daniel was a very senior court official in both the Babylonian and Persian empires, that doesn't mean he lived a life free of, as the Bible puts it, tribulation. I guess that's a good reminder for us today. Yes. The lion's den episode in Daniel's life actually occurred when he was serving, more or less, as the top administrator in the Persian court. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians by this time, and even though Daniel had been a senior official in the Babylonian court, he also became a very senior official in the Persian court, undoubtedly due to God's providence and the fact that God had a very important role for Daniel to continue to play. 
It's important to note that because this episode of the lion's den occurred while Daniel was in the Persian court, and he was more or less the top administrator within the Persian court, that didn't mean that it wasn't very important for Daniel to remain faithful to the Lord. So just because some of us may occupy very senior places in either business or government or sports or medicine, the fact that some people may be very important people in the world's eyes, that does not mean that it's not very important for all of us, anyone, high or low, in the world's eyes to remain faithful to the Lord. Now, I think it's interesting to note that in the story of the lion's den, that it was Daniel's faith that got him into trouble in the first place. He was being faithful in praying to the Lord, which had ostensibly been prevented by an order of the Persian emperor. So it was Daniel's faith that got him into trouble, that got him thrown into the lion's den. It was actually Daniel's faith that also got him out of trouble, that brought him unscathed through the lion's den. And I think that those are both great lessons for us today. Sometimes our faith is going to cause us to be at odds with what's going on in the world, but it's our faith that ultimately is going to sustain us and get us through. Now, if I remember correctly, the Lion's Den episode happened after the Persians had conquered the Babylonians, right? That means that Daniel had already seen part of his prophecies about the succession of world empires come true. So at the time Daniel was in the Lion's Den, It was shortly after 539 BC, because that's when the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon. But the Greeks wouldn't appear on the scene as the third empire for another 200 years, and the Romans wouldn't be in control of Palestine for almost another 300 years after that. So the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy covered a historical period of over 500 years? Do I have that right? Well, as I sometimes like to say in the life lessons, exactamundo. And that's one of the reasons that the book of Daniel is so significant to the demonstration that the Bible has a supernatural origin. Daniel lived a very long life. Some commentators believe that he probably lived to be over 90 years old. And that was a very long life in those days. It's still pretty long today. True that. But even if Daniel had lived to be a hundred, he still would have died at least 450 years before the Roman general Pompey conquered Palestine in 63 BC, in effect making the Roman Empire, through Pompey's conquest, the last empire in the succession of four empires that Daniel foresaw. Now, just to reiterate, it's important to note that Daniel had prophesied that Empire Number 2 would be the Medo-Persian Empire and empire number three would be the Greek empire. And we know that because in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel gave us those names specifically as the names of the empires that would follow on to the Babylonian empire. But Daniel didn't know, or at least he never recorded, the national identity of the fourth empire. Well, we learn from history that that fourth empire was the Roman empire. Well... If Daniel didn't mention the Romans by name, how can we be sure that his prophecy was referring to the Romans as the final empire in his succession of four? For a variety of reasons. Such as? Well, first, even though Daniel didn't mention Rome by name in his prophecies, he did give us a number of details about the fourth empire. For instance, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is describing a vision that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had seen in a dream. And this vision, in essence, was the first prophecy that Daniel gave within his book about these four world empires that would come. 
Now, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream was a huge statue, but rather than being composed of just one material, this statue was actually composed of four different materials, mostly metals, and these metals were associated with the world empires that were to come. So the first three metals that were part of the statue was the head of gold, the chest of silver, and the belly and thighs of bronze. But the fourth material that Daniel saw as being part of that statue in chapter 2 were legs of iron. Now if we move on to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, and I'm quoting here, After this I saw a fourth animal in my vision during the night. It was terrifying, dreadful, extraordinarily strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed its victims and trampled whatever was left. It acted differently from all the other animals that I had seen before. Close quote. So iron is being associated with this fourth empire, not only in chapter 2, but also in chapter 7. In chapter 2 is legs of iron, and chapter 7 is teeth of iron. So obviously, one of the primary distinguishing characteristics of the fourth empire would be its strength, its power, and as seen in chapter 7, also its ferocity. Now, gold, silver, and even bronze are used to make jewelry or decorative objects. But iron, the metal that's being associated with the fourth empire, iron is valuable because of its strength. And the strength of the iron is what gives it its utility. Now, we know from history that Rome was the most powerful empire that ever occupied Palestine, at least in the time period of biblical history, which is obviously what the Bible is concerned with. In fact, It's fair to say that each of the four empires grew in size geographically. The Greek Empire was larger than the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Greeks never occupied much of Europe. At its peak, the Roman Empire stretched from the modern-day England all the way to Syria, including the entirety of Africa's Mediterranean coast. And it became that large entirely through military conquest, not by peaceful acquisitions. Exactly. It was sometimes said that Rome lost some battles, but it never lost a war, at least until its internal degeneration made it vulnerable to external conquest. Maybe another lesson for today. Maybe. Anyway, a second reason we can be sure that Daniel was talking about the Roman Empire as the Fourth Empire is because history tells us that Rome conquered the four daughter kingdoms that had arisen within the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great's death. And we talked about last time on Anchored by Truth that Alexander the Great died so young that his two natural sons were too little to succeed him on the throne. As a matter of fact, Alexander's sons were murdered in the power struggle that happened after Alexander's death. And ultimately, because his sons were murdered, there was no one to succeed him. And so his empire was split among four of his commanders, Seleucus, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Cassander. Anything else? Yes. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel gives us a really interesting, kind of intriguing detail regarding the Fourth Empire. Now remember that we've talked about the fact that this huge human-like metal statue that represented these four coming empires, that iron was the material that was primarily associated with the Fourth Empire. Well, just to be a little more clear, Daniel says that the final empire starts out as legs of iron, but it turns into feet that are partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, obviously, iron and clay don't mix very well together. So the fourth empire initially starts out homogeneous, 
but it turns into a kind of composite, and the elements that comprise that composite, the feet partially of iron, partially of clay, this is inherently an unstable and brittle composite. Iron and clay don't mix in such a way that you can create a stable, strong material out of them. And that description of being brittle or stable started out as being homogeneous and strong, but progressing into an empire that's brittle or unstable, that's a very good description of the progression of the Roman Empire, and especially of the military component of the Roman Empire. You mean because the Roman legions were initially composed of, well, Romans and their countrymen? In fact, early in its development as a major world power, the Romans used to conduct something called the Comitia Centuriata. It was essentially an assembly that served two different functions, voting for elected officials and deciding on major issues of public importance, such as new laws or whether to go to war. And if the voters decided war was necessary, they began the military organizational decisions at the same time. In effect, early in their history, the Romans who decided that war was necessary would be largely the same ones who would go and fight that war. Yes. Today we would say that the people voting for the war, voting that the war was necessary, would have skin in the game. Now, needless to say that if before the nation went to war, large segments of the population thought that the war was so necessary that not only would they vote for it, but they would vote for it knowing that they were the ones who would have to go and fight it, Obviously, that would mean that the citizenry and the resulting soldiers would at least be committed to achieving victory during the war. But as the empire expanded, eventually the decisions about whether to fight a war were transferred to elected officials in the Roman Senate, and the elected officials eventually began taxing the people to pay for a standing army. But even that practice didn't last, and the Romans started using men from conquered territories to man the legions. Eventually, a larger and larger proportion of the Roman legions were composed of soldiers from their conquered provinces, many of whom weren't volunteers, but conscripts, citizens of non-Roman countries that were forced into military service on behalf of Rome. And that sort of military dynamic actually began to be reflected in the political reality of the Roman Empire as well. Precisely. So the description of the fourth empire that Daniel saw in the great statue, initially a strong unified power that descends, no pun intended, about the feet, that descends into a power that becomes fragmented and brittle, is actually reflected very well in the history of the Roman Empire. Now there's actually a great book with the title that I'm not particularly fond of. The book is by a major historian named Victor Davis Hanson called Carnage and Culture. And Victor Davis Hanson's book talks about the differences in world cultures that make a difference in military success. The early Roman military successes were enhanced considerably because the people who were actually serving in the military often had voted for it, and they were committed to whatever war was being conducted. But over time, that dynamic changed. And over time, the broad populace was no longer directly involved either in voting for a war or in participating in the military that was conducting the war. And so over time, the soldiers themselves began to have a much lower level of commitment to the causes that they were being asked to fight. So, like iron and clay, parts of the empire were no longer able to meld together. The central government in Rome and the provinces increasingly were at odds with one another. 
the Roman legions were no longer composed of citizens who were committed to the military campaigns that they were being asked to conduct. As history has well documented, eventually the Romans in Rome were more concerned with bread and circuses than they were with the stability of their nation. Right. All these characteristics point to the fact that even though Daniel did not mention Rome by name in any of his prophecies, the Fourth Empire was unmistakably the Roman Empire. Now, on our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we want to talk more at length about the reason that God gave Daniel these visions about this particular sequence of empires. But just as a bit of a teaser, let's note that each of these empires played a critical role in preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, in God's providence, each of these empires had something important to contribute, not only to preparing the world for the arrival of the Messiah, but also in enabling the subsequent spread of the gospel in a manner that fulfilled God's promise to bring the gospel to the whole world. So the Romans were obviously a key element in God's overall plan of salvation because Rome is the power that caused the death of Jesus, but Rome was also the power that enabled the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus' resurrection proved to the world that God had accepted Jesus' atoning sacrifice and made it possible then for God to forgive all the rest of us of our sins. That's one of those mysteries in Scripture that astounds me every time I think about it. Actually, if you think about it very much, it'll give you a headache. From the beginning, God had a plan to redeem mankind. But that plan involved God Himself, through His only Son, Jesus, paying the price of that redemption. So God brought the Roman Empire into existence at least partially to produce an essential step in redemption, the death of the Messiah. Jesus' death. But the worst act of all time, killing Jesus, led to the greatest blessing of all time, salvation for Jesus' followers. Makes you want to cry and sing praises at the same time. Sounds like a perfect time to close with prayer. Since Father's Day is right around the corner, how about if today we pray for all the fathers out there? A prayer for fathers. Lord God Almighty, you are the strength and stability of my life. In you we have the security of knowing that you love and accept us no matter what condition we are in when we come to you. Yet we also have the inspiration of knowing that you call us to live holy and pure lives. Your desire for each of us is to mature and become better citizens of your kingdom and better servants to our community. Thank you for being a God who loves us so much that you want the best for us. Lord, I come to you today to seek your blessing on my Father. In the Bible, you have invited us to call you Father, so we know that being a Father is a role never to be taken lightly. I pray that you would help my Father to be the kind of model that you want him to be and that you would be the special power in his life that enables him to fulfill his role. I know that often my father struggles with so many competing priorities. He wants to be many things to many different people, and in our fallen world, none of us will ever live up fully to what we expect of ourselves. Help him to understand, Lord, that as long as he sets his heart on you and seeks first to be a faithful son to you, that all the other things will be added to his life. 
I pray for health and strength for my father. You know better than any of us when he is tired or hurt, so I pray that you would grant him healing, health, and restoration as he grows weary or ill. I pray that you would comfort him as he finds cares and troubles pressing about him. You know that my father wants to be a problem solver and take the burden from others' shoulders. Help him to do all he can, but I also pray that you would send him your peace when it's time for him to rest from his labor. I pray that you would surround him with friends and companions. I know that he loves being with family, and I pray that ours will always be a close one. But I also know that there are times when he needs to be with good friends who can provide him with companionship that comes from a set of truly devoted friends. I pray that he would be a blessing to them, and they to him. You are truly our great Father. We know of your love and affection for us because you sent your Son to tell us about you and then ordained that he should die to save us. We are awed by his great love and yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.